Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. First Peter 1, 3-12 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested with fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Harvest family. Uh, this morning we're going to be starting a new series in the book of First Peter. Uh, Peter is actually addressing a group of people, and he's calling them to stand firm in their faith. If you were to flip uh, back to the end of the book. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 12, uh, he's talking to Silvanus, a faithful brother as regards him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And he says, stand firm in it. So Peter is, that's the message that Peter's communicating in First uh, Peter as we talk about all the different things he's going to be talking about as we go through First Peter over the summer. The goal is to stand firm in the faith. And as we begin this book, I think it's helpful when we are studying an epistle, a letter that was written in the early church. It's written from someone. And this book was written by Peter the Apostle. And I find it helpful to understand who's writing it and the context in which he's writing it. It helps to to bring alive the truths that we find in God's Word. So before we jump into the text this morning, let's talk a little bit about who Peter is. Like, where did he come from? What's, what's his background? What was his experience with the Lord? Because I think it sheds light on the things that he says, and he speaks with even greater authority because he encountered Jesus and he encountered the risen Christ. So thinking about Peter, who was he? He was a fisherman. 
Uh, he was brought to Christ by his brother, Andrew. He's just a zealous guy as he uh, encountered Jesus or, or was a disciple of Jesus throughout his ministry. He would say different things and Jesus oftentimes had to correct him, adjust him because he was so zealous. He was so zealous in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant and Jesus had to put the ear back on and he had to settle Peter again. Then Peter's wanting to serve him, and right before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's confident that's not going to happen, but then he denies Jesus three times. And you might think at that point in the story, this guy's going to be marginalized, not going to be utilized, but yet after Jesus is raised from the dead, when he's interacting with his disciples, Jesus restores Peter, and he calls him to feed his sheep. He calls him to the ministry of the word and to preaching and to leading God's people. So he restores him. So there's a man who's zealous and does the, the, the unthinkable, and yet he's restored. And he understands this ministry of reconciliation. And then he preaches the gospel at Pentecost. So after Jesus is resurrected and the Holy Spirit comes, he preaches the gospel and 3,000 plus people get saved. And then in his ministry, he experienced uh, miraculous things happening, signs and wonders that were happening. He's boldly preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. At one point, his eyes are opened to the fact that the gospel isn't just for Jews, but it was also for Gentiles. And he's broken and he realizes all these wonderful truths are for all mankind uh, to preach the gospel to, that they would respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's who Peter is. And as he's experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit and as he's preached the gospel, he's now sharing tidbits of wisdom with a group of people. And let's look at our Bibles. Let's look at the group of people he's talking to. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Where are those places? Well, those places uh, geographically are now in the area that would be considered modern-day Turkey. And this was a, a region of the Roman Empire. And the people that he's preaching to, they've dispersed. So it talks about to the elect exiles of the dispersion. People had been dispersed from Jerusalem, Judea. They were being dispersed out because persecution was increasing. And they were in a time when they were facing escalating persecution. And Peter wants them to stand firm. So why are we studying this book right now. We're studying this book right now because I believe that Peter has, though the truths he shared them with these people, the elect exiles and the dispersion, they're truths that I think we need to hear right now. Because even though there's there's lots going on in our nation, there's been a lot going on over the last two weeks, the last going the last two months, uh, lots of things here and there, but something that's happening is that Christians are getting more and more marginalized. Even in the midst of the pandemic, there were some states that had orders that went out that seemed to be discriminatory towards churches. And even those those were repealed rather quickly and qualified. The fact of the matter is they happened. And that wouldn't have been thinkable 10 or even 20 years ago. But those kind of things have happened. And apart from 
a a radical move of God's spirit, a, a third great awakening in our nation. Things are moving in a trajectory that aren't good towards the church. I think about some of the stories that surrounded a ministry called Samaritan's Purse. They were in New York City providing a field hospital, and they were giving their time and resources. They, were, they weren't accepting anything. It was fully given. The doctors and nurses and administrative personnel and pastors who went to serve there went on the, at the cost of themselves. And yet there were those who critiqued them and judged them called them bigots and slandered them, and all they were there to do was to help. But they were persecuted because they were Christian. And so Peter wanted to remind the people in the dispersion to stand firm. He wanted to remind them that their hope was sure. He wanted to remind them of the privilege that they had of knowing Christ. He wanted to give them instruction on how to conduct themselves in a hostile world. And he pointed them to the example of Christ's sufferings. Those are some of the themes that we're going to be learning in 1 Peter. He's pointing them, and we need to hear them as well. John MacArthur said Peter wanted his readers to live triumphantly in the midst of hostility without abandoning hope or becoming bitter or losing faith in Christ or forgetting his second coming. When they are obedient to God's word, despite the world's antagonism, Christians' lives will testify to the truth of the gospel. And that is my prayer as we jump into this study in 1 Peter, that our lives would testify to the truth of the gospel, that we would stand firm. So this morning, we're just going to actually look at the first two verses of this book. We're going to look at five truths in this text that will encourage us to stand firm. And many times when you jump into a letter in the Bible, uh, there's, there's greetings that happen. Even as we read this greeting, it seems wonderful and, and nice, but there's so much in this greeting. There's so much theological truth that Peter's trying to communicate. We don't want to just run forward. So let's look at five truths uh, that are going to encourage us to stand firm in the face of opposition. Truth number one is this. You are chosen. So in verse one, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ says to those who are elect exiles. They're elect exiles. What does that mean? That means that God God chose them. So this, the doctrine of election is one in which we believe that God is the, has done the primary activity in starting the process of salvation. He draws us. He sees us in our state. And in his infinite mercy, he comes and he draws us to himself. Where do we see this in scripture? There's a couple of places. There's a number of places we could go. But in Acts 13, it says this, for the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles and you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. So they responded to the gospel. But it says this, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. God moved 
even though they responded to the gospel and the word of the Lord expanded throughout the region, it says they were appointed. God moved in the hearts of men that they'd be soft to respond to the gospel. In John 6, 4, Jesus affirms this again. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him on the last day. I'll raise him on the last. So it's, it's God who moves on the hearts of men. Now we can wrestle with this with our American mentality. Like, no, we do these things. We take action. No, if, if, if God shows us, that must mean that we're robots. No, we're not robots. God had to move on us. And there's a, a word here that oftentimes is used uh, to say, well, no, God, God saw in the future. It's the, the word foreknowledge. Look at verse two. It said, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, some try to argue and say, well, look, God looked through the corridors of time and he saw me and he saw that I would choose him. And so then he elected me. But that's not what the scriptures teach. That's not what the scriptures say. It doesn't mean that God looked down the corridors of time to choose him. It, it means that God had an eternal predetermined plan that was loving to save intentionally those who wouldn't have otherwise come to know him. See, God is the cause of salvation. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That's what he said. Jesus said he chose us. He's the cause. But what's the, what's the reality that happens when God is the cause? God gets the glory. In Ephesians chapter two, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God is the initiator because God gets the glory in the initiation. If we're the ones that are the initiator, if God has no hand in it at all, when we come to know him, we can pat ourselves on the back. We can say, yes, I did it. I came to know him. We can demand blessings, but no, it's because in his infinite wisdom, he came after us. Why did he have to come after us? Because without God, man cannot seek after him. Man or woman. Because we learn in Romans that no one understands. No one seeks for God. That's actually a quote from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. In and of ourselves, we wouldn't seek after God. If he didn't move on us, we would just be running hard after the world. That's what I was doing before I knew Christ. I was giving myself over to the idols of my life, mainly athletics and things that would just simply promote me. And yet, at the end of high school, God started to draw me. God put some people in my life, a teacher and some youth leaders who shared the gospel with me and there was an aroma of Christ and God started to draw me and show me that I was a sinner, show me that I needed to be reconciled to him and brought me to a place of salvation. We need to know his name. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And so he brings us to himself. He says he has other sheep to bring. He draws people. He's the one that does the work. 
but we wouldn't do the work if he didn't do the work in us. So God's foreknowledge in saving you involves God's predetermining to know you by having an intimate saving relationship, by choosing you from eternity past to receive his redeeming love. Again, uh, this, this may be a new concept to you as you're delving into this, and it takes time to manage. There's mystery in Scripture because, yes, there's responsibility for us, for the sins that we commit and the things that we do. We will be accountable for those things. So there's mystery in Scripture. I don't want to deny the mystery that there is in Scripture. But we do accept God determining things in our lives without thinking about it. We talk about the fact that we've been adopted into God's family or grafted in. If you think about any child that you know that has been adopted by a family, did that child choose to be in that family? No. That child didn't choose to be in that family. But what happens is the, those parents, they go and they they, they choose that child through prayer and seeking the Lord and they, they have them become part of that family and they love on them and they care for them and they include them in the family. And what happens over time in a family that fears the Lord and loves those children and creates a context that brings glory to God, those children over time say, this is my family. They do. But... How did that begin? It began with the activity of the parents, but yet that the child did come to a place of saying, yes, this is my family. So this is a truth that we can hold dear. It's not one that creates this coldness like God is making us some robots. No, there's a wonderful relationship that happens in family. There's a wonderful understanding that we come to of, of God. But we can also know that because he's begun this work, because he initiated that work, this God who's powerful to speak this world into existence, when he speaks, things happen. Our God brings it to completion. We learn in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's gonna bring it to completion. So when opposition comes, when persecution comes, we can stand firm knowing that God began a work in us. It wasn't dependent on us. It was dependent on him and he did the work and he's gonna bring it to completion in us. So when it comes hard and we're concerned about if we're gonna be able to survive or do this or make the right decisions, God's doing the work. He's done a work in you. And he's going to complete that work in you because he began it and he will finish it. That brings us to the next point. So it's not just that he did a work in the past, but he's continuing to do a work. You're being sanctified. Look back at the passage. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. That word sanctification refers to the processes of us growing in godliness. We were justified when Jesus went to the cross, paid the penalty for our sins. We were justified before God. The penalty was paid for. 
It is finished is what Jesus said. It is done. There's nothing more we have to do to earn God's favor. We, God bestowed his favor by sending his son to the cross. So we are justified by the death of Jesus Christ. He paid that penalty. But yet we are called to live holy lives. Ephesians 1, Paul said, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Though we were declared righteous, we're, we're still growing in the process of sanctification. We're still growing to be holy and blameless before him. I don't have to tell you that. You experience that each and every day, that there's imperfection that's there. There's a process, and it's a lifelong process. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is to set us apart for his glory. What the Holy Spirit does in the process is sets us apart from sin to God, sets us apart from a place of unbelief, not believing who God is or what he can do, to a place of faith. The Spirit sets us apart from loving sin and being passionate for the things of this world to transforming us to a place where we love righteousness. That's what the Spirit is doing. We're in this season that many call the already and not yet. We already have experienced Christ and an encounter with Christ, but yet we aren't fully at the place where we are completely sanctified. That will happen when Jesus returns, and we long for that day. But until that day, we are being, we're walking through the sanctification process. And the way that we do that most intentionally is with our God time. We've, we've talked about that as part of our discipleship process, right? We abide, connect, share. But at the beginning of that is abiding. And we do that by having time alone with God. Certainly we abide in Christ throughout our days and actions, but we take time to, to abide in him. It's not a time to earn favor with God. I used to think that when I was in college, that, okay, if I spend this much time with God, he's gonna bless me in my day, or if I miss my devotions this particular day, God's gonna just, oh, it's rough. And I used to be like, yeah, it's a rough day because I didn't have my devotions. We should not think that. We have been justified. Our time with the Lord is simply a time to focus our attention on God which as we focus our attention on God, it increases our affection for God, which transforms our actions to bring glory to God. Again, we are focusing our attention on God, which increases our affections for God, which transforms our actions, which bring glory to God. That's why we have God time. Some people call it devotion time, quiet time, but we want time in his word, times where we thank him for what he's done and we study who he is, times where we confess our sins, we ask him to reveal those, and times where we experience his forgiveness and where we pray and seek him. May he reveal himself to you. Romans 8 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We are being conformed to the image of his son. So friends, know that when the 
opposition comes, when persecution comes, we stand firm knowing that he's at work for his glory. If you lose something that you love or you are discriminated against because you know Christ or something worse happens to you because you know Christ, you can know God's going to even use that to help you to grow, to help to bring glory to his name. He will even use that to show that you have been made more holy and blameless before him. God will use that. So we don't need to be discouraged by that. Rather, we're given hope in that. So we are being sanctified. Thirdly, you are being transformed for obedience. It says here, look back in the passage, after it says in the sanctification of the Spirit, it says for obedience to Jesus Christ. We're chosen and are sanctified to display a transformed life for the glory of God. We do something with the work that he is doing. Because if Paul says, before we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're created, we're recreated to do something in obedience. Now we don't obey perfectly. We don't obey perfectly. Because we're not in the place where we're completely sanctified. But yet there should be a pattern of obedience. Don't obey perfectly, but there should be a pattern of obedience in our life. We should see increasing fruit. We should see uh, the gap between the times. Maybe there's an area that we struggle uh, with sin. Maybe it's anger or self-righteousness or something. But, but those times when those, that pops out or it rears its ugly head, maybe the, the time that that happens, it increases or it happens less and less frequently where there's an increasing sense of seeing righteousness in your life. So that there should be a pattern because we should, we should obey. John, or Jesus said in John 3, he said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Our obedience shows that we are saved. Our turning from idols, our transformed behavior, our bold proclamation of the word, our eager anticipation of Christ's return, all of that demonstrates that we have been regenerated. But oftentimes, friends, though, though we don't obey perfectly, but we do have a pattern of obedience, we must understand that our obedience is often costly, and it will be costly. And there's strength to obey even when it's costly. And we know that even Peter, in his life, after he was radically transformed and restored by Jesus, he goes and has a ministry, there were times where he faced intense persecution and there were times where he had to choose between honoring men or honoring God. And this is what he said in Acts 5. He said, but it says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Friends, there may come a time when you have to choose between your job and honoring God. There may come a time where you have to choose 
between keeping your house or your possessions or your comforts or obedience to God. There may come a time where you have to choose between your spouse or your children or obedience to Christ. There may come a time where you can continue to live your life freely as we have lived in our nation or you'll give that up by being arrested or jailed or whatever because you know that obedience to God to bring glory to Christ is what is needed because our, our hope isn't in the comforts of this blessings from this world. We are looking to a time to come. And Jesus gives us a promise in Luke 18. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time or in the age to come eternal life. So when opposition comes, when persecution comes, we can stand firm in obedience to Christ, not because it's some obligation to do, but because he's worth it. And we're looking to the day that we're going to be with him and valuing that day more than this day. And we can have hope in knowing that he's going to help us to endure because we are secure because of the blood of Jesus. We're secure because of the blood of Jesus. There's a covenant commitment that has happened between us and God. In the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, we see, happens in the New Testament to see that a covenant commitment is made by the shedding of blood. This is not a contract. Not just something you sign that maybe if someone breaks it, you get a lawyer to come and, you know, walk through that in the court system. No, this is, this is for keeps. This is for life. That's what a covenant is. And this was displayed back in the book of Exodus. If you want to leave your finger in the book of First Peter and flip back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. So God's people certainly uh, had, Moses had gone up on the mountain, they'd gotten the law, Moses was coming down, and they, they're going to have a covenant commitment. And this is what happens in the story. So look at what happens in the story. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So they're, they're making offerings because they're making a covenant with the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the blood, the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So they're making a covenant commitment. There's the shedding of blood to make a covenant commitment. And then Moses took the blood and threw it on all the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you is in accordance with all these words. 
They made a covenant with the Lord and the Lord made a covenant with them. And I know it sounds gruesome, like all this blood and what does that mean and on the altar and, and it was thrown on the people. But there's great significance in this story. The blood on the altar represents God's commitment to reveal himself to his people, to reveal his law. And the blood of, on the people that was, that was thrown on them represents their commitment to obey God. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, we not only accept the benefits of Jesus' death, but we submit to the lordship of Christ in our lives. But this sprinkling of the blood is more than just about our commitment, our accepting of the blood of Jesus. It's a sealing. It's a holding fast. It's a keeping an immovable holding of us in the hands of Christ. We know that this commitment is for life. It is for good. So when we are found in Jesus Christ, we don't have to be driven and tossed by the wind. We don't have to wonder, will he walk away when we aren't perfect or when we make mistakes? No, the blood of Jesus acts like a seal to the covenant that he made between us, that God made with us. And we remember this covenant. We remember this blood that's so powerful when we take communion because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, in Matthew 26, it says he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He was helping them to see this covenant, but it was his blood, the covenant in his blood. So when opposition comes, we can know that we are secure in Christ Jesus because of his blood. We can know because Jesus said to us in John 10, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Because of the sprinkling of Jesus' blood, we are found in him and we are secure in him. Yes, he did the work in us and now he's continuing to do a work in us and we certainly respond in obedience to him, but we can know that we are secure in him just by looking to the fact that he shed his blood on the cross. He said, it is finished. And we are found in him. So when that trial comes, when persecution comes and you're, you're tempted to waver, you're tempted to wonder, has God forgotten me? Or has God let me go because everything seems lost? No, absolutely not. He has not forgotten you. He is actually with you. He has promised he'll never leave you or forsake you. He, Jesus promised he's with you to the end of the age. There's a promise there that you're secure because of the blood of Jesus. And we have received grace and peace because of what Christ has done. Peter closes out his greeting with what sounds just like wonderful rhetoric, but it's profound. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May you experience the full measure of God's blessing. Grace, may you be empowered in your life through his spirit, not only to overcome the 
sin in your life, but to boldly proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May that grace be there. May the grace be there for you as you walk with brothers and sisters in Christ, as you seek to understand what's going on in our world and and live that out. May there grace there for you. And there's a prayer that that would happen and that's poured out on you. And we know there's much grace as we humble ourselves, as we listen, as we grow, as we humble ourselves before the Lord. God gives grace to the humble. So he's going to pour out his grace for you and peace. First, we had peace with God, but we actually have peace because our hope isn't in any of these things. In this world, our hope is in the fact that Jesus is returning. So even as we think back to this truth about election, it's, it's humbling. It's humbling that God would see me in the state that I was in knowing that I would deny him, knowing that I would sin against him, knowing that I wouldn't be a good reflection of him and he sent his son to the cross and that he drew my heart that I would receive this gift, the blood of Jesus. God moved and if you've never trusted in Christ, I'd encourage you today to respond because God wants to draw you. He's he's pricking your heart and he's drawing you. There's other things that have happened in your life because he wants you to have a relationship with him. He's active in your life and he's gonna continue to be active once you trust in him. For those who have trusted in him, he's been active in your life. So that can produce joy in us because of his activity. We couldn't have chosen him because we were sinful and running away, but he chose us. And he gives us this peace because there's gonna be eternal blessing that comes. There's peace in this world, but there'll become a time in the midst of all the unrest that we are experiencing right now in our world, in our nation, in our world. The description of our Lord's kingdom is peace because he will rule in complete righteousness. So we have this promise. And as we look to this promise, it motivates us to live in line with the kingdom that we were purchased for. Not live for ourselves here, but live lives that are holy because we were set apart by his special love for his glory. We're gonna learn more about this in a few weeks in 1 Peter 2. But Peter says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May that be your experience, brother or sister. May that be your experience as we continue to study this book of the Bible. Remember, it was written by a man who had lots of zeal and wanted to do much for God and, and had a desire to, to be in a place of position and glory, and yet he failed, and God restored him. 
and then used him powerfully as he was humble. The Spirit worked through him and did great in many things and saw people won for Christ and much was happening and he endured because he knew all of these truths and now he's communicating them to these people and we are learning them together that we can endure from this great saint. We can endure from learning from this great saint in the faith. And I pray that you would, you would benefit from these truths and that you would stand firm to bring much glory to God as we anticipate his return. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. You are good. And I pray right now, God, for those who might even be struggling with this truth about your activity in their life. You are drawing them. Help them to see their inability to go after you, but your amazing love and grace to pursue them. And I pray, God, that you would help us to, to see that truth so that we will be praying because we know that you need to move on the hearts of those that we love, whether it's our family or our friends or our neighbors or our coworkers. Lord, you need to move on them. And we pray, God, that you would move on them. We pray, God, that you would use our gospel proclamation uh, as you used your faithful servant Peter's gospel proclamation to draw the hearts of men and women they would come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that these truths, that though they were in the introduction of this book, that they would be profound truths that we would allow to trickle down into our souls and we would experience your love and your peace and the knowledge of your pursuit of us. And even when we're flapping in the wind and wondering what's going on, where's God? We only need to look back to the cross of Christ to know about your love and be reminded about what he said, that he would be with us always to the end of the age. So I pray, God, that we would find comfort and hope and peace as we study these words. I pray that you would transform us, that we would bring more glory to your name and that we would stand firm in these truths. We ask that you do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.